house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. It was quite uh, shocking. I, everyone is fine. I mean, they, they yeah, know what they're right. doing. And he got so scared that right he ran away from the table. What? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcastman that is in trouble. Every week on this Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with the only thing I'd reach to save from an avalanche instead of my family, <laughs> Joe. I'm very honored by that, Chris, and thank you. Uh, thank you Cuts for to my that. my being like, he reached for his phone and his friend. <laughs> his podcast? God yeah, damn it. while he, you know, hugs our plant babies or something. Oh, my um, So, right off the top, I feel like we... Uh, we should brag a little bit because Let's. we are not doing this episode. We didn't plan this episode. We sure didn't. After Ruben Usland did so well with the Oscars this year. All right, Mich- all right, Allison Williams with your uh, pristine pronunciation. We'll get to the Allison Williams. We'll get to the Allison Williams. But we were like, you know what? We could just do force majeure. Like, why not? We could talk about the past year of Triangle of Sadness, blah, blah, blah. I think we, like, both looked out the windows and were like, Snow, let's talk about force majeure. (laughs) (laughs) But no, we planned planned this episode before Mm. Triangle of Sadness netted those three Oscar nominations. Somewhat surprisingly, it had been in the conversation forever. It had been sort of like an early prediction for Picture and Director, and that a lot of people moved off of it because it did not do very well in the precursor season so to the point when those nominations happened last week was it last week what is time um eight, almost a week six ago. days ago yeah, yeah five days ago yeah to the point when those nominations happened nobody was really predicting that that 10th slot the presumed 10th slot right or the presumed, presumed fifth, fifth director, director slot yeah. would be triangle of sadness right and but at the time so- the second that they were announced, it's like, well, of course, of yeah. course it is. Yeah. Um, and this goes back to your theory that you've been uh, you've been floating around. Sometimes we do know things in October. <laughs> I will. And the caveat to that, though, is some things because I, yes. I immediately was like, tell that to the women of Women Talking how much we knew in October because right. like we were really predicting but in October. The women of Women Talking, there still was like a well. Is it this? Is it this? Is it? You know. Yeah, but I think I think the certainty conventional wisdom was someone would be nominated for that movie as, as well. yeah the same conventional wisdom that held about Triangle Sadness held about you know women talking is going to get at least one supporting actress nomination. We Listen, should say as of this recording, yes, you know who's right about women talking? The AARP Movies for Grownups Awards giving their supporting actress to yes. Judith Ivy, who should have been the supporting actress contender for that movie all along. Hugely deserved, a hugely deserved win for Judith Ivy. It helps offset. 
but the fact that the M4G is named Top Gun Maverick, their best film, which do better M4Gs. Um, but you take the good, you take the bad, and you take a win for Judith Ivy, uh, no matter what. So also from our text thread this morning, uh, you you are very smart about this. I was complaining that good luck to you, Leo Grand, one best uh, grown up love, love story. story grown-up love story and i was like but it's not a love story and you countered me with it's about her learning to love herself and that i endorse just as valid as anything else all right (laughs) we are talking about force majeure which was the movie that sort of put ruben ostland on the map Um, he made features before he had it was not his debut feature but like no nobody was really talking about available in the states though yeah he was so a lot of people think that this is his debut feature and it's not it's not, but it is the movie that, for all intents and purposes, put him on the map. He's a uh, Swedish filmmaker who... One of the interesting things that I learned about Ruben Osland was uh, he worked at a ski resort when he was younger, if not a teen, then like in his 20s. And like that's where a lot of the inspiration He's came. He's made ski documentaries. He's made ski documentaries, in fact. So, yes. And in fact, some of the most sort of visually arresting scenes in this movie take place on those ski slopes. I think mm-hmm. he, he films the act of skiing actually very well and very sort of like, you know, interestingly. That scene, even not even the whiteout scene, although the whiteout scene is incredible the towards the end of the movie. so cool. But even the one where it's the long shot of him and i'm just going to keep calling him tormund giant spain from game of thrones because that's his character in game of thrones but redbeard um he him and and redbeard sort of you know skiing down the mountain from that in that very long shot and they're sort of like making parallel paths down the mountain and the the snow is sort of powdering up around them it was beautiful to look at like get this guy mm-hmm. to the winter olympics and just sort of like have him film all of the nordic <laughs> the winter events. olympics are back in sweden ruben usland will be the whatever you call that role the, the danny boyle the zhang yimu and the danny boyle right the guy who directs yeah. the uh the opening ceremonies for sure did you see by the way our, our friends the at- opening ceremonies of the sweden olympics will be everyone pissing and shitting everywhere <laughs> <laughs> our friends at blank check are doing a series on Danny Boyle right now and did you see that one of their uh, 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 Patreon bonuses is going to be they're going to do the 2012 London uh, Olympic opening ceremonies I can't fucking wait I'm so excited I love that opening ceremonies it's so over the top but absolutely wonderful Um, anyway back to Force Majeure Um, this is a movie that that sort of dovetails interestingly enough with sort of like my uh my sort of career, I guess, in an interesting way, where uh, this played at the 2014 Toronto Film Festival, which was my first. I've talked before about this, how I covered that film festival after having getting uh, declined for press accreditation. So I bought a bunch of public tickets and just sort of uh, had the Atlantic. Uh, Yeah. uh, You know, that was my first year as well. 2014. No, that that's what I had to do my first year. My oh, first yes, year yes, yes. was yes. 2017. Yes, yes. We did the same thing in our respective first years. But I remember because of that, because I was sort of like going on public tickets, uh, I was a little bit, I had to make my plan ahead of time. And normally the thing that you can do at TIFF is sort of like pivot and, you know, maybe I'll see this public or press screening instead mm-hmm. of this press screening. And you can, you know, sort of be a little flexible and you're less able to do that on public tickets. And so I had paid attention to can buzz but not like as close attention as i maybe pay to it nowadays and so Mm -hmm. when force majeure played in certain regard at can that year 
And it, like, it got some attention, but like, it really was overshadowed by a lot of other things it can. It wasn't even like the, the level that like After Sun got this year playing out of, uh, the main competition at Cannes. Um, it played Critics Week. It played Critics Week. And so I remember the first I really had heard about Force Majeure was at, tiff where like it was one it screened early as many of the can selections do and a lot of people were talking about it and it got very lot of chatter and i was very very like i couldn't get a ticket to it by that point so i was very very sort of like bummed out that i missed out on seeing this it was sort of the very first experience that i had with this sort of you know tiff buzz you know circulating probably around the kind something. of tiff movie i mean i don't know if the schedule's that old or still available but like rings like the type of thing that does really well there and partly because after sun this year was the same mm-hmm. they book it in all these small venues so mm-hmm because of the word of mouth is strong enough, it becomes this high demand ticket because it's not, you know, adequately programmed. But so that movie then was like very, very much on my radar uh, from that point. I ended up being able to see it later on in the fall. And I really like this movie. I don't know how you feel about force majeure. I know Ruben Oslund is a, is a filmmaker who people have a lot of very complicated feelings about um, good (laughs) and bad. I, tend to be much more positive on him in general and i really really do like this movie quite a bit i am net positive on ruben Usland and probably net positive on this definitely net positive on uh triangle of sadness net negative on the square probably not net negative on the square probably full negative yeah you seem to be a lot more negative I on the square like than the i am square i like the square just fine it's my least favorite of the three of those i think triangle of sadness is maybe my favorite of the three of those i really really like triangle of sadness even though i find the third part of it be a little to be a little repetitive and superfluous um but the in general with, i think that and especially for you is the climax of the movie is the middle (laughs) yeah the middle part portion of triangle of sadness is some of the most spectacular uh and 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 exuberant and six months editing the vomit sequence that's why it's so funny it's so funny it's so 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 funny um but anyway i think force majeure is a much more um it's less of like the peaks and valleys ironically for a movie Mm -hmm. taking place on a ski resort um but (laughs) It's it's an idea movie that carries off its central idea, I think, very, very well. It's a sly comedy that, like, you see the difference between European and American sort of comedic sensibilities in the difference between this is one, another Force thing Majeure that is and interesting to talk about for this movie. the American remake of Downhill, one of those movies that didn't cause the pandemic, but opened so close to before the pandemic happened that sometimes in your mind, you're just like, oh God, like that was... I think it was the second to last movie I saw in a theater before lockdown. I could see that. I could see that being true uh, for a lot of people. I That's a movie that got really, really poor reviews and i liked it i think better than the consensus okay so i'd forgotten this about downhill and maybe it's because everybody was in a weird place downhill got a d cinema score yeah that's kind of wild but maybe it's also it doesn't surprise me it is will ferrell i think downhill is more overtly dramatic and less comedic than Force Majeure is in terms of what the balance of that movie. Downhill hit the exact wrong spot in the middle between people who saw that movie to see 
Will Ferrell and and Veep essentially, and you know Julia right. Lewis, Louis Dreyfus from Veep, play a broad comedy, and the other par- people who saw it were people who loved Force Majeure and wanted to see, and were a little bit sort of like arms crossed, being like, "Show me what you got, American remake of Force Majeure," and it was too much of a remake of Force Majeure for the people who came to see a Will Ferrell movie, and it was too much of a Will Ferrell movie for people who came to see. Uh, something as good as force majeure. And so it hit right in the wrong place in the middle and nobody liked it. It's and... the it's the way, way back guys. And they also did the descendants with Alexander Payne. Nat Faxon and, I and just then, think... uh, Jim Rash. Yes. Yes. I, for me, I just think that their vibe is not for me. <laughs> I will say I like Jim Rash a lot as a sort of a comedic voice. I will like, uh, full disclosure: I've met him at least once, and seems he's a lovely person. And so, like, oh, maybe that's like, like nice people. Um, and yeah, they're funny actors. I think Downhill is not entirely successful, but has more high points than people uh, kind of gave it credit for. I think Julia Louis Dreyfus is giving a good performance in it. I of co- I love Miranda Otto. I think Miranda Otto is a scream in that movie. We've had this argument before. I we think have. Miranda Otto is fucking ridiculous I, in that movie. I think she's yes, I, I, she is ridiculous in that movie, and I loved every second of it. I think she's great. I think she's absolutely wonderful. Also, like, that, she felt like such an American convention to add to this movie. Oh, I don't to know. To try to make it Americanly funny, um, because there's not a full analog for that sort character of, eh, in Force Majeure. Like, sort of. Not in the way that she behaves. <laughs> no, not in the way that she behaves, but like in sort of like in her function in the plot, right? It's She's a the... recontextual, it's, yes. a, you know, a reimagination of that character. Yeah. Um, but in a way that I think really works. Yeah. Well, we, uh, agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. I think it uh, makes that movie even worse. No. Um, but like, it also couldn't be more, you know, trademark stamp American remake because it ends uh-huh. in this. You know, it ends with this cathartic, yeah. you know, outpouring between the husband and wife. And right. that's entirely not where this movie goes. Right. Ostland's know? Force Majeure ends in the opposite of catharsis, right? You are like, you right. are at the least cathartic place Literally possible. Literally stuck on a cliff. Wandering down this endless winding road uh, <laughs> into a ver- rapidly setting sun, kind of, too. I, I kept getting very, very worried as I was watching that. It was just like, it's going to get dark at some point, And like, any car coming down that hill is not going to see you. And you're going to all be... Just very much trouble uh, as you're walking down this road. Uh, It also reminded me of uh, the personal story incoming. I'll get it out of the way before we get into the plot description. So when I was 20 years old, uh, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. When I was 20 years old, my dad and I were driving from Buffalo to Albany just before Christmas to pick up my brother from college for winter break. And... Halfway through, right around Syracuse, traffic had sort of slowed to a crawl because it started to snow, and snow had sort of started to accumulate on the throughway a little bit. And a car tried to zip up around the traffic along the inside rail and caused a tanker truck to jackknife onto the minivan that my dad and I were in. And so this tanker sort of like, you know, swerved oh my God. its cab and tipped over and uh fell onto our minivan and sort of you like were final destination tood essentially yes because the other thing about it was traffic 
traffic being at a crawl was essentially what saved us because what was coming up in the right-hand lane was a bus. And if traffic had been at full speed and that bus hadn't been able to like veer off into what was essentially like an open field on the right side, that bus would have T-boned us. Um, I really don't like this story. So it was one of those things. It's it's If you ever have a thing where you can hear your brain talking to you, which sounds very like fake, my brain said to me in that moment, like, be prepared, turn to your left, your dad's going to be dead. And he was fine. I was fine. We were, like, all, like, inexplicably, absolutely, totally fine. And so we, like, I non-power windows, the magic of roll-down windows, because I was able to roll down my window and, like, head first, like, dove out the window and, like, pulled my dad out. And, like, the ambulance that came up was, like, we saw that. We thought we were pulling dead bodies out of the car or whatever. And everybody in the round, like, the people who were on the bus, because we actually ended up, like, going onto the bus for a while and, like, just sitting and waiting for traffic to clear out because they had to, like, somehow get this, like, big, huge truck off of the road. So we're sitting on the bus, and the people on the bus are like, what's your license plate number? I'm going to play it in the lottery tonight. Like, that kind of a thing. (laughs) So eventually, we get cleared off of the road. We get sent to the closest rest stop on the thruway. My cousin's husband drives my brother in from Albany to meet us, and my brother shows up classic college kid with like his stereo under his arm and a garbage bag full of dirty laundry into this like rest <laughs> stop because he had to wait an extra hour this rest stop in the middle of the throughway they all literally thought we were moving in um and <laughs> then we waited for my uncle to come from buffalo two and a half hours to drive us back home because my mom didn't have a car and and uh you know uh, all that so <laughs> the Play the the spot where this movie this intersects with force majeure is. So my uncle is driving us home, and like thank God, what a wonderful thing for him to do is driving the three of us home. But my uncle, very much like my grandfather, um, is a lunatic on the road, and I didn't know that until we were in the car with him. Post traumatic stress, sort of like <laughs> settled like, in. And, like, I'm white-knuckling it the entire two and a half hours from Syracuse to Buffalo. And, like, it's December 20th. You know what I mean? So it's, like, it's, right. you know, the weather's not great. And he's just, like, just, like, heedlessly driving. Because, like, he didn't just get traumatized by anything. So, like, what does he care? And he's just sort of, like, absolutely oblivious and sort of, like, driving us back. And, like, that, to me, was scarier than anything that happened in the accident. Because the accident was over before <laughs> we knew what happened. So all, like, that's what I was thinking of while watching that scene in Force Majeure where you have the cameras on the wife and the wife who has been traumatized by this, you know, incident, not only the, the fright of thinking that you were going to perish in an avalanche, but then sort of the unmooring of learning that your husband ultimately isn't going to be there for you if something really bad <laughs> happens. So she's traumatized and she's so shaken by the poor driving skills of this, you know, uh, van driver or whatever that she makes him stop and like makes them let them all get out onto the street. And like, I didn't not relate to the idea of just like, just let me out right here. I will walk. Um, so that's what that reminded me of. That scene is another one that is filmed tremendously well because you're like, the camera is in such a place where like, you're almost looking over the edge of the road, like into the mountains Mm -hmm. ahead. Like you're so close and it's really, really stressful. Um, 
really, really great scene in that really, really great movie. Thank you for indulging me with that story. No, it's not an indulgence, because I think that that was kind of necessary to contextualize the movie. Because I'm maybe the awful person that I'm like, well, yeah, he's just fight or flighting. It doesn't really matter. Like, you're taking it too that personally. Is true. He can't really do anything. But, like, having that level of emotion, the people you care about in that type of dangerous situation yes. is actually a real thing. And yeah. Oh yeah, I was in the shoes of yeah. the wife in that one. Like there was like, you know, uh it 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 is it is, you know, and the way that they film the quasi avalanche is also really good because like again, like this movie uses whiteout very well uh in those two different spots and um it's not really snow that comes upon them. It's almost like the the mist of snow yeah. of this avalanche that overtakes them. But you can't see anything. Everybody's sort of running around. It's this moment of terror and to find out that, like, and we are, of course, seeing it from an objective position. The camera never moves, right? The camera is yeah. fixed on this thing. And so what we that see... That whole one makes it feel like you're watching security footage or something. Yeah. And what you see is not only does this guy run, but, like, essentially, like, moves his one son out of the way a little bit. It's just sort of just, like, <laughs> so he doesn't he shove him. But he just sort of, like, <laughs> is like, you go here, and, like, I'm out of here. It's just, and it's very funny. But um, it definitely did bring back memories of that drive back down <laughs> from from our accident on the throughway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a moment. What a moment in time. Sure. What a movie. What a movie. What a movie. I really like it. Yeah. Uh, should we get into the plot description, maybe? Yes, let's do that. Which I haven't prepared, so I'm winging it. Forgive my Swedish pronunciations, but we are here to talk about Force Majeure. Written and directed by Ruben Usland, starring Johan Bakunk, Lisa Loven Kongsley, Clara Wettengren, Vincent Wettengren. Love when actual siblings are cast as siblings. Yeah, yeah. as Joe mentioned him, Redbeard himself, Christopher Hivju, Karen Myrenberg Faber, and the one and only Brady Corbett. Yes. Corbett. God love him. I've forgotten. He always, uh, my notes are literally like when you least expect it, Brady Corbett, because like he just does sort of just like, <laughs> he does tend to like show up in these movies and you're like, oh, right, I forgot. I also feel like one of downhill's uh missed opportunities it should have they should have brady corbett in that movie as well for one scene yes they absolutely should uh the movie premiered in uncertain regard at Cannes in may 2014 also played tiff and then opened limited october 24th 2014 mr joseph reed are you ready to give a 60 second plot description yes let's all right, then your 60-second plot description for Force Majeure starts now. All right, so Tomas and Eba are a married uh, parents of two who go on a family vacation to the French Alps at a ski resort. And almost immediately, one of the early things that happens, they're on a terrace eating breakfast. And the, one of the controlled avalanches happens, and it gets too close to the thing. And all this sort of, it looks like it's going to overtake them all. And in the the panic of it all tomas pieces out and runs out on the family and then everything is fine it's not really an avalanche and so he comes back sort of sheepishly and nobody talks about it and it really really throws Ava. and in all their interactions with everybody else throughout the rest of the weekend she keeps bringing it up she can't believe it happened he tries to deny that that's what he did at first eventually he cops to it and it like it throws their entire marriage off of its axis it throws their friend's marriage or relationship rather off of their axis and it profoundly just just destabilizes 
traumatizes them to the point where they can't really enjoy themselves for the rest of the ski weekend. And Tomas like tries to help her when they get whited out on the ski slopes at one point and like thinks he saved the day, but it still hasn't really worked. And by the end, they get out of this little van down the, down the winding road and, and walk themselves because nobody trusts anybody's ability to get them out of a, a scary situation anymore. The end. Your 15 seconds going over time was like a rising snow mist whiting <laughs> out the episode. All right. So where? what was your experience watching this movie for the first time? How did you... Uh, uh, I'm pretty when did you watch sure it? I, I... I honestly can't remember the first time I saw it. I would have seen it at some point in this Oscar season. So maybe yeah. I had watched it later on VOD or I did see it in the theater. I honestly can't remember, which is very strange for me. I'm the yeah. type of person that can not only tell you what theater I saw something in and the circumstance, but like the actual auditorium I was in. So I'm yeah. very uh, surprised by that for this movie. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I my feelings about it have never really changed. I always feel like this is maybe the fourth time I've seen this movie. And it's always because there's a thing about his movies where it's like, there's a thorniness to it. And there's a, a thorniness to what I feel works or doesn't work for me. And I see, I recognize that in other people, you know, kind of, mulling over his movies yeah. and like there's a feeling like maybe it'll improve maybe i'll resolve this thing that doesn't work for me and i usually end up feeling exactly the same way about his movie he's one of those filmmakers uh, you, you would see like the coen brothers get tagged with this a little bit or um sometimes alexander payne who gets tagged with this idea that he uh despises his characters or sort of like sits in moral judgment sits in moral judgment of his characters as sort of like an aesthetic choice and i don't necessarily disagree with that in any of those cases nor with the coens nor with alexander payne it's never been a problem for me maybe i'm just a judgier person by nature i don't know if that's the defining thing though it's not i don't know if he judges or hates his characters i just think his characters are more what they represent or they're more conceptual than they are actual people. If anything, that's what's best about Triangle of Sadness in his arc of movies is some of those people do actually feel like real characters to me and more than just what they represent for the narrative. I don't know, though, because I feel like Ava and Thomas, I get what they represent in this movie. This is very much just sort of like watch as the toxic masculinity, like, you know, envelops this family. And well, and especially within the framework of a heteronormative marriage. I mean, you're talking about the type of nuclear family that is all in matching union suits. Like he's predicting the old Navy of it all. Yeah. Um, They look like a Christmas card on their vacation. Like they're that type of nuclear unit. Yeah. And what I do, one of the things I do appreciate about Force Majeure is when you see these type of marital strife movies, and I think downhill kind of dulls the edges of this, Mm -hmm. that, Normally, when you see movies where a husband and wife are at odds in a certain way, it usually comes down to infidelity. Yeah. And that has become so absolutely fucking boring to me. Yes. And this finds something else. And something that I think, you know, real couples kind of do have to, uh, you know, 
reconcile at some point, you know, impulse that you can't really control or a, right. how you handle crisis situations. Well, it's almost like the the conflict in this movie is at the root of it what a lot of infidelity conflict is when you take away the sexual aspects of it. And like not uh-huh. sometimes infidelity the root of that is, you know, jealousy or insecurity about, you know what I mean, like why are mm-hmm. you, you know, do you not want me anymore? But sometimes it, the root of that is this person who I took for granted would be there for me and support me and be loyal to me and be dedicated to me, you know, as are the kind of precepts of marriage, the pre- presuppositions of marriage isn't and has revealed himself, himself in this case, uh, to not be those things and the, the devastation that that can wreak on the, mm-hmm. the partner who, has been, you know, betrayed. And this is a betrayal in not like an active, you know, betrayal, but in a betrayal of everything that Ava thought that he was. You know what I mean? And every mm-hmm. every bit of security that you, like one of those things that you, you enter into a marriage, in part because you're in love, of course, and in part because you want to sort of like dedicate yourself to somebody. But it also... I imagine saying this is somebody who's never been married. Uh, I imagine that part of it is this sense of security and the sense of we are going to support each other and we are going to, uh, you know, be there for each other and be dedicated to each other. And to find out that that is not absolute, I would imagine would be not, <laughs> not the most or that it's subject to other things. Like sure. Yeah. Instinct, you know? Yes. Not- yeah. Things that you might not be able to control. Right, right, exactly. But it it is this sort of like when the chips are down kind of a thing. But I think that's what's fascinating about when it moves into uh, Mats and Fanny, who are the the uh, friends of theirs, who also then their relationship kind of becomes, it's like catches a stray, right? Where all of a sudden they... Well, it catches that thing of when you are not the George and Martha, but you're the Nick and Honey, and you get caught up in another couple's fight, and you unpacking it, and like, you know, makes you have your own fight. (laughs) Right, right. And so when they, and it's their fight is even funnier almost, because literally the thing that she says is, yeah, I think you'd do that too. (laughs) And you can see where he would be incredibly offended by that, where he's like, like, I haven't even done anything wrong yet. And you just assume that that's what I would do. And your ex fucking boyfriend would do better. Like that whole conversation, which I think is so funny. Um, Basically huge portions of force majeure is the first 20 minutes of triangle of sadness which is partly why that first 20 minutes while very funny is tedious oh i like the first 20 minutes it's it's the last half hour of triangle of sadness that i find very very uh yeah but dolly dion is so fucking good this is but this is why i'm sort of my appreciation for her is muted because i'm like you could lop off that because you don't like that i just don't like that portion of the movie um but wait, what I was going to say. Oh, so uh, Tomas and Mats, who are like friends, right? Uh, bef- they're they're the they're the reason their friendship is the reason why uh, these two couples are sort of you know interacting with each other, and they end up right. like they go skiing later and do this like weird like you know scream therapy thing on the slopes, <laughs> and then one of my favorite scenes though is after that is where they go uh, on this weird little like almost like snow beach and you know 
sit mm-hmm. on the the lounge chairs and whatever and are having a beer and with the snow beach mist around yeah like, what like pop isn't there like a pop song or something that sounds like swedish pop is playing or yes something? The, yes and they're flirting with these two young women and it's sort of like making the both of them feel better about themselves and then the <laughs> women are like oh we you know we weren't buying you drinks we thought we were buying drinks for somebody else and right it's buying them drinks right that's the misunderstanding and whatever it is um and they're like oh and like not being mean about it but like collaterally like you know it can't feel good to just be like these women who who you thought were interested in you are like sorry and like and matt's gets very uh, like demonstrably like oh are you fucking with us or are you you know trying to um you know play a joke on us or whatever and they have to get and this whole thing again is filmed statically from a distance the camera doesn't move up so you only see like the torso and below of these other guys who come over and are like trying to like um you can tell like a fight is maybe imminent between these two guys who are going to you know uh pummel tomas and Mats for you know being mean to the women or whatever and then that gets like calmed down in a way where it's like toxic masculinity toxic masculinity right. um you know uh, young uh, bucks on the on the uh, in the forest or whatever like clattering with each other and again it's one of those things where it's almost observed like a do- nature documentary almost it's just like look how the wounded male ego behaves in, in nature <laughs> kind of a thing i mean the the nature documentary vibe to what uslan finds funny is a good thing to point out you know in discussing his comedies because i think it's something that grates on a lot of people and really grated on some people with triangle of sadness really grated on me with the square yeah in that there is a level of smugness to what he is doing like whether that bothers you or not for me with the square it bothered me less because i think smugness in the realm of like the art world i'm like uh, yeah, I'll take I'll I'll accept that. You know what I mean? I'll accept right, that but, as an aesthetic. Uh, uh, on the same token though, smugness in the art world is like the most obvious satire. That is true. Like, that well, and that's why I think it's my least favorite of the three of them. Like I don't think it's saying yeah. anything particularly prof- particularly profound. I just uh I didn't I wasn't turned off by it. Right. I will say. Uh, it also features Elizabeth Moss playing a uh crazy person and that's always fun to watch <laughs> in the least appealing sex scene i have uh, yeah. maybe ever seen yeah um this movie the my favorite comedic scenes are when he's pretending to cry <laughs> yes because he's, he's really so good he's really really well, good and then then there's also the sequence where he is like the exact opposite and he's uncontrollably sobbing and mm-hmm. it's so absolutely pathetic it is um, well and they keep cutting back to her and she's just sort of like okay she's like you oh know? my god yeah stop. yeah like, yeah 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 and it's almost this it's the same her her response is essentially the same as when it's like oh my god stop you are not actually crying and mm-hmm. oh my god stop you are being in, an idiot you you're are embarrassing <laughs> this is embarrassing yeah. stop this yes I mean, and again, sort of like what you're saying with the square, where it's like, 
it's not necessarily breaking any ground to like at this point, even in 2014, to show that like the male ego is a fragile thing. And, right. and like this is almost like our men okay, the movie. <laughs> like that's, that could be <laughs> the American title, Force Majeure is just our men okay. Um, but it is, it feels but the like the sequences it, are well done. And it like, strikes, and like the notes that it strikes feel, um, intuitive and feel, like it's not they're not false right they're not it's not striking false notes i think he's a an incredibly like talented and you know precise exacting filmmaker who is not often interested in the most interesting things yeah um sure yeah or like who is interested in saying the obvious thing most of the time sure that's fine though honestly like i don't always I I don't always need that. And maybe I'm like, you know, I'm giving him more rope than he deserves, but also like I've enjoyed more or less the act of watching all three of these movies. And I think especially in this one, or I guess particularly in this one, because this is the one I just watched, the filmmaking is interesting to me. The filmmaking is like the choices that he makes are apparent and i'm not somebody who always notices like subtle filmmaking choices so sometimes you do have to like hit me over the head with sort of stuff um but in that way i think it's all really effective i want to talk about the whiteout scene though towards the end of the movie because i think it's the best scene in the movie yeah where all of this has happened he's now had his like big uncontrollable sobbing scene where like she's lost all respect for him they've you know turned their friends into squabble, uh, you know, unwittingly turned their friends into squabbling uh, (laughs) monsters and their children have been just like on their little devices the entire time. And all the sort of dynamics are set up and they go for this, like it's their last day. They're going to go out on the slopes. They're going to try to function as a family like they were before. And we'll see if it's possible. And the father and the kids get a little bit out ahead of Ava and she it's a very foggy day out on the mountain and all of a sudden she can't see them where the camera's in the perspective of Ava and mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's just white. It's just clear white and she can't see them and she's not calling out for them. Is the other thing like he's calling out for her and she's not calling out for them. And you sort of wonder, it's just like, no one Clouds of Sils Maria, another movie that was at that TIFF and that can uh, that I did see at that TIFF where sort of Kristen Stewart disappears in the mm-hmm. <laughs> into the cloud in that movie, like <laughs> never to return. I almost thought that like that was going to happen to Ava, where all of a sudden it's just like, oh, she's just going to like slip away forever. And yeah, know, the never kids return. are going to be buried in snow where right. she is. Or, yeah. Right. And then eventually he goes off into the mist to like find her. And then he comes back sort of carrying her and he's done his masculine duty for the weekend. And now he feels, you know, better about himself. And it's just visually, it's very, very compelling to watch. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of that scene? I've talked. Enough. No, talked I, I, I mean, I love that scene, even seeing it multiple times. And I don't, I forget if there's a one-to-one scene of that in downhill. Like if they recreate that scene, I feel like they don't, but, or they do it in this type of like set piece way. Right. That's not the whiteout, yeah. um, because ultimately he goes and saves Ava. Yeah. Um, 
saves i'll put in question mark like it, right. you know what he i mean he thinks he that he has her. saved her right that's that's yes, that's, that's what's the important. point and that's yeah. what's frustrating about the american remake is like yes it's not the perspective he thinks he did this yeah but he yeah, did yeah. this um yeah no that sequence is great every time that i've seen this movie i forget get how it turns out and it it's so well conceived that you know it feels like watching it for the first time each time you don't actually know it feels dangerous enough that it's like oh do they kill the kids in this movie (laughs) does the wife go off and do her own thing right or something you know it does it feels alive in a way each time that i've watched it that you know anything could happen and two three Ah! Christopher, come in off of the slopes. We've got to talk about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League for a second. Uh, leave your family behind. <laughs> I'm actually not on the slopes. I'm at the bar. Oh, yes, we've um, talked about this. Right. We don't do the Brady slopes. Corbet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, leave your family behind. We're going to talk about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League for a second. <laughs> um, it's been a few weeks. I was on vacation. Once the Oscar nominations happened, there there is a sort of decided lull in the season anyway. So I went on vacation. We skipped a week. But we are back to talk about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League. We are, as we record this, on the precipice of the next sort of phase of the season. The Directors Guild announces their winners tonight as we are talking, and then the BAFTAs are tomorrow. But we'll deal with that next week. So, for the moment, we want to talk about what was the subject of our newsletter this week, which was... Once again, talking about the best value selections of the season, which is movies that, for the point totals that they got and the cost that it took to draft them, which were the best payouts. So, Chris, talk to me about the top movies on the list. Did you have any of these top ten movies on your team? Um, I'm trying to remember my team. I've... I have to admit, I have let my team go because yeah, you're pretty I, far back. Uh, didn't do so well. Yeah, um, I did have a few of these. I have Fire of Love. I have Banshees of Sharon. and that I think is it that I have in my team. Um, the, however, the top one which I want to talk about the top movie by very... far, like literally, like yes. almost a hundred points ahead of the number two team in terms of. Points per dollar, not total points, but points per dollar. It's almost a hundred ahead, which is crazy. I feel like, uh, at least late in the season, I have sounded like a cheerleader for this. Movie. You have, I assure actually. You, I am not. <laughs> I was just assured that this was going to be a movie that does very well. We are talking about All Quiet on the Western Front. Surprise, uh, BAFTA success leading into surprise Oscar nomination Indeed. success. I finally watched I, however, it last week. This past okay, week. what did you think? Better than I thought, but not as good as nine nominations would have you thinking it is. I think right. of the two, I still would probably prefer something like Sam Mendes's uh, 1917 to this if we're talking about immersive World War One. You know, movies. This mm-hmm. all quiet on the Western Front obviously comes from the perspective of the German soldiers. It is really, really brutal at times. Like there is some really gnarly, as you would expect. Like the the you know the trench warfare in World War One is sort of you know rightfully talked about as some of the most brutal of modern warfare ever. And 
that's on the screen. Like, you know, uh, Edward Berger puts that on the screen. I think the stuff that I tend to like best is sort of the juxtapositions of the soldiers, kind of the the all-quiet part, right? The parts where Mm -hmm. it's downtime and they are, you know, in this sort of, like, countryside or they, like, steal a goose (laughs) from a farm or whatever. And then there is also the stuff that they kind of added that isn't in the book, which is the armistice negotiations with Daniel Brule or whatever that I find a little superfluous to the rest of the thing, but I think it's, I think it's good. I was kind of prepared to hate it and of sort of, it's a long movie. So I was prepared to sort mm-hmm. of like grind my gears through it. It wasn't, that was not my experience, but, uh, I definitely am someone who hated the movie, the kind of brutality that you're talking about. It was so over aestheticized to me yeah. to make me kind of feel like it's luxuriating in it in a way that I, it's felt showing like off for that stuff. I can see that. Yeah is trying to talk out of both sides of its mouth. It's trying to be God of War video game, but also be like, but actually we're, uh, you know, anti-war type of movie. And that... There are scenes that, like, feel, like, cribbed from 1917. Not to give, like, Sam Mendes too much credit Mm -hmm. for, like, inventing stuff or whatever. But, like, the scenes where he's, like, running across No Man's Land or whatever, like, there's a way to do that that doesn't look exactly like that sort of famous shot in 1917, that sort of one-er... And I know all of 1917 is supposed to be a wonder, but it's not really. Um, But yeah, I get, I think I get why the crafts departments all sort of like went for All Quiet on the Western Front, even though it's kind of funny that in this year that the Oscars went for so many big movies and big blockbusters and big sort of like crafts bonanzas or whatever, that all, that a movie would show up in every single category feels like that kind of belies the competitiveness of those categories this year. The fact that like, you know, Elvis and everything everywhere and Top Gun Maverick and Avatar and Black Panther Wakanda forever. And all these big movies ended up being big Oscar nominees and like even stuff like Babylon, which is not like an action blockbuster, but is like an aesthetic bonanza. Right. So Mm -hmm. the fact that something like all quiet on the Western front showed up in every single one of them, I tend to chalk up to smart campaigning on Netflix's part in that Netflix sort of settled on this one as their movie, even much to, you know, the degree where I wish they hadn't. I wish they had maybe tried to push Glass Onion as their number one movie, but we've talked about that before on this season. Mm -hmm. So... I'm curious what your thoughts are for this movie in terms of will it be able to maintain this lead as the, like, per capita uh, selection choice for this game? Because I do really wonder how much it can actually win. I think it's going to do better Mm -hmm. at BAFTA than Oscar in terms of wins and points for the game. Well, if you look at the rest of this top ten, so you're looking at stuff like... There are movies on here like A Love Song, which is the Dale Dickey, Wes Studi movie from last year's Sundance that was a dollar to draft and pulled in 55 points, which is like a pretty good per uh, per dollar value. It's got Independent Spirit Award nominations, so there is a chance. I think it's an outside chance. I don't think Dale Dickey is winning uh, Indie Spirit Award for this movie, so this is probably where something like that tops out. I think you are also looking at that for, I don't think After Sun is winning anything else from here on it. Although I guess it'll probably win DGA for first feature for Charlotte Wells tonight, actually. Um, but 
what else? Um, the the Elvis Mitchell documentary is that black enough for you, which gets here on entirely on the virtue of being a perfect score in Rotten Tomatoes. It got fifty points. Good for that. movie, fun movie. I don't think Living is going to be winning anything for Bill Nye. Unfortunately, I hustles not winning the SAG Best Actor for Adam Sandler. What? So the only movies in this top ten, like RRR, will win. Probably, I think, best song. Fire of Love. I'm questioning that. Fire of Love probably won't win best documentary feature. But even if RRR does win best song, and I get that, like, it's lost a lot of steam, so maybe it won't win best song. But it's only one award. I think the the movies in the top ten that you're talking about that might be able to take the per dollar prize from All Quiet would be either Elvis or Banshees of Inisherin. Mm-hmm. As I told you and Katie this week, I won't believe that Banshees is completely out of Best Picture until the envelope. You've been banging this drum. You've been banging this drum since probably Tiff, which is that nobody doesn't like Banshees of Inisherin except for that one guy who wrote that (laughs) article for Slate about how it uh, it um, tokenizes, I guess, the Irish experience. and then, but you've been sort of banging the drum of like this is your preferential ballot champion because it is. If anything beats everything everywhere, I think it's it. on the virtue of it being sort of maybe a lot of people's second choice or a lot of people's you know third choice. Even nobody's if, last choice. Nobody's last choice, right? And I think that has some merit. I do feel like it's losing a little bit of steam, but. It's tough to tell. I mean, this is the part of the season where everything seems like it's losing steam because no, nothing's been happening. Right. And people are looking for stories for things, like mm-hmm. all these people saying, well, maybe Top Gun does have a chance at winning Best Picture. And it's like, no, it doesn't. People are just looking for things to talk about. And I will say, uh, this was something that the IndieWire podcast talked about this week a little bit. Um Trying to read the tea leaves of the nominations luncheon, uh, the Academy very graciously put the entire uh, nominees luncheon photo lineup uh, on YouTube, which I watched entirely because, of course, a friend and previous guest, Pamela Ribbon, got to be there and hobnob with all the celebs. She had guys. Uh, I know that Pam is my is my friend, and I watched it sort of with a with a very very biased heart. But like, she's genuinely having a better time than anybody except maybe Kiwi Kwan. Like, that's basically <laughs> the only other competition. She's just having the best time. It was so lovely to watch her. Um, did my heart good. But anyway, you can sort of try and read the tea leaves of the nominee luncheon in terms of who the room seems to really respond to when they like when their name is read for their nomination and what's the like applause meter right and mm-hmm. everything everywhere got a ton of applause from for almost everything but Colin Farrell also got a big 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 round of applause there and mm-hmm. was sort of he also like at one point is like you know joking with the photographers they're lining up for the for the picture and whatnot and he's just sort of being incredibly charming and I'm trying not to get my hopes up for a Colin Farrell Oscar win because I would love it so much, particularly given the competition. I don't not like Austin Butler, but I would much rather Colin Farrell win this Oscar than Austin Butler. I was thinking for the longest time Austin Butler was winning, but like at this point, I think a lot of that gas is out of the engine. I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. I think he's probably still the favorite. I'm still not... 
I still don't think we're out of the woods with the Brendan Fraser thing. Like I will, I will not stop being on guard about that until. No, no. I mean, you're right to be that way, especially when it's like, even if he's third place, he's a very strong yeah. third place. He's. I would guess he's gonna win SAG. If he doesn't win SAG, I think it's over for him. So if you're out but on Austin I Butler, if you're out on Austin Butler, because I know you have previously made a claim either on here or on our text thread, I can't remember that Elvis could win the most Oscars of any movie this year. Have you have you backed I, off on that? That I was saying Elvis is gonna Dune. Um, I do think that that's possible, but mm-hmm. I I I think thinking that that's possible has also helped me realize that it might be Colin Farrell simply because what else is Banshee's gonna win easily? Supporting actress, maybe. Um, I don't it's know. Not, that's, I don't think that's gonna happen. That's not a thing. I'm bracing myself. And that's the one where it's like, I really love Carrie Condon, and I would in a vacuum love to have her win an Oscar, but like the shitstorm that would result of that for Angela Bassett losing an Oscar is not something I think is worth it. And I'm uh, hoping that does not happen. But I don't think that's going to happen. We'll see. Um, I think the fact I do think Elvis is probably. I mean, Catherine Martin is about to um, win another Oscar. <laughs> two. You think probably. two? You think both costume and production yeah, design? I I would maybe wager Elvis getting the makeup Oscar. Um, do you not feel like under the guise of? Um, oh no, it's not. That's right. Everything, everywhere, all at once is somehow not nominated in production design, even though it has the most production design, which I think is insane. So yeah, I think you're right that Elvis will probably win production design, and yeah, probably costumes. Costumes on the virtue of like for the same reason that like people who play real people uh, win awards. People look right. at that and just be like, <laughs> I remember those costumes. Not that Catherine Martin isn't a phenomenal costume designer would deserve the world, but I think awards voters can vote it's for the right people. Costumes they, awards voters can movies. vote for the right people for, you know, perhaps the wrong reasons, or at least for perhaps more shallow reasons than we would like them to. That's crazy that everywhere all at once did not get a production design nomination. There's so much production design in that movie. It's crazy. I'm going to plead the fifth. Um, uh, hater, 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 hater. Okay, but inter- it is interesting that we're talking about these possibilities of what Banshees could win and what Elvis could win. Yes. Because I do think that there's a strong potential that they could overtake All Quiet on the Western Front to be the, like, they They could. There's a lot. By I, the end. I think Elvis. There's a lot of points on the board for the oscar win elvis with a better shot than banshees just because elvis was only a ten dollar buy whereas banshees was a twenty dollar buy but banshees at this point has the second most total points of any movie it's only behind everything everywhere all at once it's been a tremendous legitimate shot at best picture which Mm -hmm. elvis we can agree does not right so i think in general though like you look at like elvis's point per dollar is at 51 banshees point per dollar is 49 and a half all Quiet on the Western Fronts is 143. So, like, there's a lot of of ground to make up for there. But, um, but again, we just listed off a bunch of categories that All Quiet on the Western Front is nominated in, and I don't think either of us think it is. We think it's winning contender. international feature, and probably that's it. I mean, 
there's maybe sound. I do think mm. maybe if something does beat Elvis in production design, it could be all quiet on the Western front. Yeah. I still think Elvis is winning that. Sound is incredibly um, sound has four best picture nominees in its lineup, which like the sound branch uh, tends to follow best picture. That's why I thought everything everywhere was going to, but even more so this year, because as I mentioned, like there's so many big bombastic movies in that best picture lineup. So all Quiet does have a shot, I think, at cinematography, because there is so little Best Picture at play there. Um, and, like, we've talked about Darius Kanji, who n- who's never won before. He's not going to win this um, time, unfortunately. But, like, no one's talking about that. Well, and, would... yeah, and it's Bardo. Like, I, th- I, I don't see Bardo getting an Oscar on its on its lone nomination. Same thing for Roger Deakins for Empire of Light. I, in that category, am rooting for Mandy Walker for Elvis, another Elvis Craft nominee See, that could another thing that I'm like, it could be Elvis there. Uh, Mandy Walker would be the first uh, woman to ever win for Best Cinematography, which would be rad. Uh-huh. Um, and also, like, she's done tremendous work. I remember wanting her to get a nomination for uh, Australia back in the day, speaking of, like, Baz Luhrmann. But, like, uh, Mandy Walker's done the cinematography for Shattered Glass and... Uh, Jane Got a Gun and Hidden Figures, The Mountain Between Us. She was the one who shot the goings-on on Fuck Mountain. So, uh, yeah, exactly. All right. I mean, if... uh, Okay, what's the... How many points do you get for winning documentary? Because is there a shot that Fire of Love, if it wins... Uh, overtakes it? Hold, please. Being that it's already in second place? I don't think it's going to get that many, but hold on a second while I I look this up. We were talking about uh, the doc feature lineup before you got on here and it's really strong this year i was not so bullish on all the beauty and the bloodshed even though it's one of my favorite movies of the year it's chances and now i think a lot of my concerns have gotten over that hump because it was the previous winner thing she got through to the nomination i thought that this was a movie that rich people would not be able to identify with but it is also a movie about an artist and i think they identify to that right see so the thing so if fire of love does win best documentary it'll get 75 additional points which would put it up to uh almost 200 and then is does DGA have a documentary award? Is it is it in line to? I don't think it's going to win that one. But I I, I don't know. Uh, I do think Fire of Love is not Indie Spirit nominated. So like yeah. that's not points it'll get. Right. I think the Oscars are its best chance. So like winning that Oscar would get it from fifty seven points per dollar to almost a hundred. But the thing about it is, All Quiet on the Western Front's one hundred and forty three points per dollar is not going down. It can only go up. Like there is. Right. fluctuation only upward on this list so yeah. um it's again it's a it's a lot but like but you know as you mentioned you get so many points in the league for winning oscars like a best picture win is 100 points on its own you know what i mean so mm-hmm. um there is there is room to maneuver there upwards for the other movies on this list but anyway we're going to be back next week to talk about the bafta results which i think are going to be are going to have a lot of people, as they do every year, have a lot of people talking. I think every year the BAFTAs happen and everybody sort of rushes to declare that everybody who won the BAFTA is going to win the Oscar. And it often happens. Last year, oh, I wrote about that. Uh, what did I say? I wrote it in the newsletter. Why don't I just read from my own dang newsletter? Uh, last year, the BAFTAs matched the Oscars for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Director. So four of the top eight categories, BAFTA and Oscar matched. So 
you've got a good chance if you win the BAFTA to win the Oscar, but you are not guaranteed. So should be interesting, I think. And we'll be here to talk about it next week. Anything else you want to add, Chris, before we sign off and go back to the slopes? Uh, Oscar for Pam. Oscar for Pam. We love you, Pam. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> and two, three. Ah! There's also that scene that is very brief where they go to that, like, nightclub in the in the resort. And <laughs> There's just, a nightclub sequence in Downhill, too, and it does not go as hard as this nightclub. You remember like, way more about Downhill than I do. I can't hang with clubbing in Sweden <laughs> because it's, like... Yeah, shirtless men basically doing a mosh pit in this very enclosed space. Yes, and there's like water. It does not seem fun to me. <laughs> it feels like it's half sauna, half nightclub. Where like, like, is this just a thing you're doing to like sweat out toxins or something like that? Like, what's going on? Right. Are straight people okay? Are straight men okay? Um. Once again, I ask. Oh, here's the thing I wanted to ask, and I was going to ask this up front. Have you ever skied? Are you a ski person? Absolutely not. Okay, same. Well, shoot. I mean, it looks pretty. I love snow. I would go. I love snow too. Here's the thing. I would go on a ski trip. I would not leave the lodge deck or whatever. This is why I have multiple bottles of wine. It would be great. This is why we're friends. We need to figure out a way to go to a winter excursion, <laughs> make a friend skiing trip, and, and let all our friends go, go ski, and we sit back in the lodge and like apre ski the entire time. That's what I want. <laughs> That's entirely what I want. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I want to sit. Desperately need some type of friend trip. So this sounds amazing. I want to sit in a stone cabin where there's like a big sort of like or whatever where we're sitting there in front of a uh, roaring fireplace everyone will go to the sauna club and we'll still and it's like hot toddy after hot toddy is coming this way and like exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. okay i'm glad we're on the same page there (laughs) (laughs) no i had friends in high school like our high school would do like weekend like uh maybe i guess it was like day trips or whatever or even like friday evening like holiday valley was the sort of nearby ski resort you would go into like the sort of northern appalachians if you go south enough in western new york you're hitting the sort of like the northern part of the appalachians and um so you would you know there was skiing to be done there and i was never interested in that that never really appealed to me whatsoever as many sort of like uh quasi-athletic activities i would go like we would do a thing where like you would go to like the big you know park whatever like the state park around here and go sledding on the big big huge you know uh the hill that we would all go sledding down um but that was about it that was about my experience with uh with winter sports i was also not an ice skater i tried ice skating one time i was not good at it and i decided i that was it for me that was done yeah that's not for me that was not for me. So I live in Ohio. I don't think we have shit like that. Like we had Kings Island, Cedar Point. That's what you get. Sure, 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 sure. I was also afraid of those things too. So. <laughs> um, what can else? we talk about part? Of, the reason why I wanted to do this is to talk about the snub video. Oh yes, can we talk about this? Well, I know that it's gotten men- since the nominations have happened for Triangle of Sadness. This has gotten mentioned. On other podcasts well, and such. Let's go chronologically, though, through the... So this movie through premiered... the season, because we are talking about a then-foreign-language film, now-international film. Yes. International feature category, which is the second time we've done this? Probably. But, like, 
this, I think, is actually an interesting case because this movie starts in uncertain regard, doesn't win the big uncertain regard prize, it, doesn't. it wins the jury prize, which is like third place, whatever. Yeah. Um, has a good festival run, gets strong reviews in the US, it's Sweden's submission. Well, and this is one of those years where some years the the foreign language winner is pretty well apparent and it's like who else is going to get nominated right? right this was a year where all of the precursor prizes went to different things right where uh bafta gave it to wild tales which is this like quasi anthology story uh very very watchable it's very sort of like it's uneven but very it's like entertaining very entertaining um the indie spirits gave it to ida the globes gave it to leviathan which is this sort of very kind of depressing mm-hmm. movie about russian corruption um two days one night was in the mix the dardan's movie two days mm-hmm. one night marion cotillard ends up getting the best actress nomination but that movie didn't even make the short list for the doesn't Oscar. make the short list and that probably helps propel her nomination to the point you wonder yes which it would a different nominee have happened if that movie had made it through to foreign language Right. Ida ends up being the somewhat unlikely winner in that, like, by the time the Oscar nominations happened, voters had settled upon Ida as, like, the featured foreign language Mm -hmm. uh, contender, where it gets nominated for other awards. How many total for Ida? Was it, like, three total awards? Two. That it was just right. It was just cinematography. Foreign, it was foreign language and cinematography. It's also the movie, or it's the film that I always say uh, was the reason why Cheryl Boone Isaacs ended up slipping up and saying dick poop because she was so concentrated on pronouncing the names of the Ida cinematographers correctly. Uh, Lukasz Zal and Rizard Lenzuski. See, even I, I would probably say dick poop too, because I'm so, she's, she, she, you can hear her pronounce them so carefully and she's very, very (laughs) studious about it. And then like her brain was like, well, that's it for today. I'm out of here. She says dick poop. And it's tremendous. Dick poop. Um, but so anyway, so uh, Force Majeure makes the short list of nine, along with eventual nominees, Wild Tales from Argentina, Estonia's Tangerines, a movie that I definitely saw and don't really remember much about. Wasn't there also that movie released at the same time uh, when Tangerines actually made it into theaters, like in a general release, the same time as Sean Baker's Tangerine? Sean Baker's Tangerine was 20... 15? 15. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, so the summer of 2015. Yes. So this movie doesn't make it into theaters until like this roughly the same time. And right. people are like, what are we seeing? Are we seeing the one about sex workers? Right. The... Right. Yeah. Uh, Leviathan, the Russian movie, was an Oscar nominee. Timbuktu from Mauritania, which I saw at the Chicago Film Festival that year with our friend Nick Davis. Uh, I really, really loved Timbuktu. I was very... Of the eventual nominees, that would be my choice to win. It also, I was very, very adamant that that movie should have been a costume design nominee because the uh, costumes in that movie are really, really gorgeous. Um, and and then Ida, which was the Pavel Pavlikowski movie uh, that eventually won. So also on the short list were a movie called Corn Island from Georgia, a movie called Accused from the Netherlands, a movie called The Liberator from Venezuela, and then Force Majeure from Sweden, which because that was a movie that had gotten some degree of acclaim from Cannes and from TIFF, most people sort of assumed was going to be a nominee. Yes, it was force majeure once that shortlist happened. This was when the shortlist was only nine right. uh, instead of 15, yes. as it is now. Yes. Um, heavily, heavily predicted. 
Uh, it was meanwhile, it's you know racking up critics mentions throughout you know end of the year season and critic prize season. It's nominated for the Golden Globe, although the Golden Globe was won by what did I say? I just said Leviathan. It. Leviathan, right? This is also because it's interesting to talk about this race too because like you mentioned it was one that initially i think by the time the nominations happened it kind of quickly uh settled into Ida because of the additional yes. nominations that it had yes or nomination that it had the yeah. wild tales was in there a little bit um there were other high profile things that were submitted but not even making the short list you mentioned two days one night yep the palm winner winter sleep uh was submitted and not selected though if you've seen that movie you can see why it's three hours of people talking about politics once and, that one won uh, the palm people were like huh like a lot of that movie's detractors <laughs> well, sort of came out had a lot of movies in cans so it was partly like he was due it yeah. is a really good movie but is like okay the Academy is never going to yeah. respond to that movie. Yeah. Um, the movie that beat Force Majeure for the top prize at an uncertain regard, White God. Right. Which About the dogs? I never saw because I cannot watch Animal in Peril movies. Sure, sure, I sure. don't know why I'm so tenderhearted about it, but I am. Yeah. The apparently horrible St. Laurent biopic i would say i saw st laurent i don't i don't think it's bad it's not the greatest thing that i ever saw i thought it was pretty good and it's it's you know it's sexy it played can and then i if i'm remembering correctly there was another st laurent biopic afterwards that maybe also played can. oh Um, well then maybe i'm thinking of the of the of the lesser one but anyway right right um and then also from Canada, not water, but a movie <laughs> that we both actually like, despite, uh, you know, wide uh, discussion of this filmmaker, uh, Xavier Dolan's Mommy. Oh, I loved Mommy. Which... Um, My favorite of the Xavier Dolan movies. I mean, for good reason. It's really, really impressive. And it's... And it's... You can see why he got so many chances, because that movie mm-hmm. is so strong. Yeah. And, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so strong, but it's not like he's sacrificed his usual vision. Yes. Anyway. Like, it is so purely a Xavier Dolan movie, but it is, you know, maybe the best that... <laughs> the least um, patience testing yeah. that his aesthetic um, and vibe has but it also has these incredible performances too it's it's um, it's showy in its aesthetics in a way that i think really works and i think like jives well with the characters in that movie like that is a movie mm-hmm. where these very ostentatious you know the at one point the the lead teen sort of spreads the frame from this you know box frame to widescreen as he's uh uh lip-syncing to wonderwall and i think all of that stuff works the last little uh um what you call it montage sort of like fantastical dream montage that the mother has of this like imagined uh future for this kid which is set to the same piece of music that they use for the series finale orgy in sense eight um (laughs) is uh really really tremendous and it made me cry um uh also though i want to shout out uh 
Force Majeure was one of the five uh, independent movies recognized by the National Board of Review, along with another, I believe it was another Swedish movie, because it's set in Sweden at least, um, which is uh, Lucas Moodyson's We Are the Best, which is about... Which a, I still haven't seen, but I know oh, you like Chris, that, and other I people would, I respect really like I think you would best. really love it. It's about a uh, a band of these sort of young little school-age girls form a band, and it's really, really likable, and I think you would really like it. Um, but anyway, so the shortlist happens. Most people assume that Force Majeure is, if not the top contender, like one of them up with Ida. And so Ruben Ostland and his co-producer, I imagine, um, yes. decide to film their reaction to... <laughs> To the nomination (laughs) announcement. And this goes on for several months. Okay, let's 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 unpack unpack it. Let's unpack unpack this video. Because from the beginning, uh, they were in the Trump Hotel. (laughs) Oh, in in Columbus Circle? Uh, I believe that they're in New York. It does not look like they are up at five in the morning. So I'm assuming it is the New York Trump Hotel. The one in Columbus Circle, I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, And you, for a few minutes, you're watching them go through the nominations, eagerly awaiting the category that they're waiting for. And um, you do hear the dick poop announcement during this video. So this is interesting. But they're too busy responding to Ida being nominated in that Category. Well, and also, and, like the shade thrown to Ida is fantastic. Well, it's one of those <laughs> things where they know enough to know that Ida getting nominated in other categories isn't good for them because it makes Ida the front runner. They like literally say like, "Oh, yeah. that's probably going to win now because it's getting nominated elsewhere." They also there's a knock at the door. I am somebody who knows the dick poop moment, like backwards and forwards. And so I know it's coming. Once you hear cinematography, I'm like, they're going to say dick poop. And there's a knock at the hotel room door and they both leave frame. And I'm like, no, it's going to happen. Like, come back, come back. (laughs) But they're too distracted and they don't notice the dick poop moment, which is like the most tragic thing that happens in this entire video, actually, that they would deny themselves unwittingly uh, this moment of levity. But anyway, continue. Well, they're they're busy shading Ida, and then when they get <laughs> to the category... I do kind of love it. It's bitchy as hell, but I love that they're shading Ida. Ida is mentioned first, and they kind of just look at each other, and then they go through it, and then they slowly realize they're not getting nominated, and they can't tell... You can tell they can't tell what order it's being announced in. Is it alphabetical? Is it by Is it alphabetical, alphabetical by film or by country? country? Right, right, right. And then they're like, oh, there's only one more. And yeah. Wild Tales is nominated for Which was the surprise. Team. Wild Tales was the one that most people were not predicting, I think, right. at that time. So. Because Wild Tales, while, like, is probably one of the more accessible of those nominees it's a because little crass. it's entertaining it's because a little, it's, yeah. it is a little crass someone literally like takes a shit on a car yeah. in that movie yeah 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 um and then it's like kind of violent yeah uh, it's not does not have snob appeal the way that uh the no. other foreign language films have snob appeal no. yeah um and so they don't get the nomination and they go off screen start they go off screen, the phone is ringing, blah, blah, blah. And then you hear them off screen and captions. And this is where I'm like, this is staged. They decided to make a joke out of it, but their camera was rolling and they were off screen. Yeah. They took it to make a joke. Yeah. Either way, it is very I appreciate funny. it. I appreciate it either way. Yeah. You hear Usland like sobbing uncontrollably, much, much like the character does in the yes. movie. Yes. The producer is like, "Keep your clothes on, keep your clothes on." <laughs> it's it's great. 
I love it. It is it is fake or not, it is legitimately very funny and true to the nature of the movie. Yes. And yes. I think because you know, it's interesting. You also have uh Polakowski because of Ida and this and Polakowski would continue to have Oscar success as well. It's interesting that they're both together and that uh Usland was being shady in this yeah. video. Yeah, they have um, both since now cracked the best director lineup for different movies, which is Well, um, but it's also made this movie helped, you know, get Usland through the door with Oscar people. And I actually think the video helped people remember him when like the square came back around and now for triangle of sadness. So it's like he, well, the other thing about in acknowledging it, it helped him get in the club. Yes. The other thing though, about the square and then triangle of sadness is he has now joined the ultra prestigious list of filmmakers with two palm doors to their name, which like, I don't it's have too many palm doors for him. I'm sorry. And mostly, I mean, I feel that way because I hate the square, but also like both, both of his palms felt like, uh, in, when you look at those lineups, we know this about the palm for the square is that it was kind of a negotiation between the team because everybody had wanted or the jury because a lot of people had wanted BPM to be the winner mm-hmm. and it didn't win because and some people <laughs> Almodovar who was the jury president has not named names but has said that there were some people who clearly didn't get it because it's a movie about gay people was and i think who are you blaming who are who are you blaming for that it has separately come out that one of those people was will smith is will smith homophobic i am not saying that but will smith has been named as one of the people who did not like bpm but the square was seen that is why he should have been banned from the oscars for 10 years that already will smith is also on the record of saying the one movie i liked that i saw in competition was jupiter's moon uh (laughs) cornell mondrosco's movie that never got u.s distribution because everybody critics across the globe hated that movie um and no one in the jury liked it so i don't think will smith had generally a fun time being on the chariot can um <laughs> not a thing he would nobody do talks again. about it but like he and jessica chastain were both on that jury and then they end up being those oscar winners yeah um that's also a fun can because Jessica Chastain comes out and says, you know, she was so surprised at the level of Misogyny. the lack of women yeah. represented in movies from, you know, some of the greatest filmmakers in the world. And a lot of people have chosen to believe she's talking about Hazelana Vicious um, for his Godard movie. Right. Um, but yeah, the 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 square was seen as like the safe choice from that jury because it you know no one has really sure no one felt everybody kind of liked it and nobody hated it i certainly am on the i'm on the team bpm of that bpm was one of my favorite movies of that year but yeah, i will BPM say i'm absolutely should have that palm the thing about ruben Oslin now having two palm doors is it's an incredibly exclusive list he's the ninth director or co-director yeah. to have won the award twice this is a list that includes 
Francis Ford Coppola and the Dardens and Michael Haneke. Ken Loach has won it twice. Billy August. Billy August is the one where people sort of point to and it's just sort of like on and that same level. Nobody like, likes either of them. Billy August is one too. Pele the Conqueror and what was the other one called? Um, um, not not the non-musical Les Miserables, even though I believe Billy August did direct <laughs> that. And not, it's not the, uh, what I always want to say the Bostonian. It's not the Bostonian. It's not the House like of the Merchant Spirits. Ivory. It's uh, the Best it's Intentions, 1992. Best Intentions, yeah. Um, so that's another one where it's like it's not like it's all killer no filler in the uh, multiple palm winner list but a lot of people really hold that idea that like winning a second palm like all these greats he's very young too to have two palms I believe he's 50 sure or close to 50 yeah almost he's 48 will be 50 this August or will be 49 he doesn't jump ahead two years that's not how it works uh he will be 49 (laughs) uh this August but yeah so this is it's it's definitely a thing where people sort of like that's why most people didn't think Triangle of Sadness would win the palm because they're like they're not going to give Ruben Oslin two uh that that might have been true in a year where previous palm so many previous palm winners were not in competition like they were last year yeah well, and you look at what the the thing last year was, there was a lot of movies that got good but not great reviews, right? Where, like, uh, Decision to Leave, Park Chan-wook's Decision to Leave, got good reviews but not, like, Yeah, nothing was universally beloved. I think, honestly, I think to, if, to do it again, there's a chance that if people knew that EO would end up being this sort of, like, unlikely crowd-pleaser... Uh, and, you know, sort of favorite throughout the year, maybe EO ends up winning uh, the Palm. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's movies like James Gray's Armageddon Time, which, like, good but, you know, complicated mm-hmm. reception to that. Or I'm what else were the other sort of uh, well-regarded uh, Kelly Records showing up, which had a bit of a muted reaction. Or, um, like, obviously, like, Claire Denise Stars at Noon <laughs> was not universally loved. Holy Spider had a very complicated uh, Listen, it prevented Close from winning the Palm, which would have been, like, egregiously bad. Was like, that the one that won the Grand Prix? Was Close? It, it tied the Grand Prix with, with uh, Stars, Stars at, noon. at Noon. That's right, I forgot about that, which is weird. The past two cans, you have a lot of these ties, and a lot of things that have come out semi-off the record about the jury deliberation is a lot of these ties were to kind of appease mm. um you know, not division, but, you know, really strong feelings that certain jury members had about certain movies that weren't widely felt. So that's why something like Titan and Triangle of Sadness have ended up winning the Palm because they were broadly liked across the entire jury. Mm-hmm. Um, though I would argue Titan is a much better Palm win than uh, Triangle of Sadness. I know that not everyone agrees with that. I, I um, sort of put them on, on a level with each other. I think I appreciate them maybe to the same degree in different ways, but uh, right. but uh, perhaps to a same degree. There was also Broker, the Hazard, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda film, which he had just also won. Also a recent Palm winner. I was going to say he had just won the Palm the year after, actually, Ostland won it. Uh, so... Yeah, there was it was an interesting uh, Cannes Film Festival. I will be very, very interested to see what the lineup ends up being this year. But uh, we will talk about we'll that at a future if, date. Uh, Scorsese is there or not? Indeed. Um, so, and if the Lanthimos is there or not? Um, what were the other sort of uh, 
awards and have we sort of gone through everything else that that uh, force majeure ended up winning it doesn't end up getting the oscar nomination and that unfortunately is sort of like the end of the line for a lot of these foreign language films where it's just sort of like well you know season's over a little bit and <laughs> we could talk a little bit about that actual can because also in uncertain regard aside from uh white god which we've mentioned already mm-hmm. uh the disappearance of eleanor rigby <laughs> yes which played the, as one uh, film, right? It played as, as the is the combined film. This was before hers, it got yes. before it got separated into his and hers. I believe that was the version that I saw. Was theirs? Was the? Did you see it at TIFF? No, I saw it at um, a press screening at one of the like uh, you know regular New York City uh, press screenings. I movies. saw the theirs version, which is both of them but it's not three hours long oh i don't know maybe that is what i also saw now i genuinely can't remember um i remember having a feeling of should i go see the separate ones too because i remember hearing like (laughs) you know maybe you know i've always had the curiosity for it yeah um all i remember from that movie is isabelle opere having really nothing to do and it's like wow jessica chastain really did just like convince her to do this movie for her yeah um it's weird that also that viola davis is in that movie like it's just yes yes yeah um and i also remember the sun lux score which they just have their first oscar nomination this year for uh everything everywhere yes this is 2014 can though is a is a pretty good and interesting can even when it's not stuff that i loved like i'm on the record as saying i don't really like cronenberg's maps to the stars but like that's an interesting movie to have in your Mm -hmm. can lineup Incredible Julianne Moore performance. Julianne Moore as Lindsay Lohan at 50. (laughs) But there's movies that, like, it's interesting when there are movies from filmmakers who are quite notable. And it's like, there was an Adam Agoyan in a movie in that lineup that, like, I don't have any... Which one is it? Is it... Because a lot of Adam Agoyan stuff in the past decade is supposed to be abysmal well it was the captive it was the one with ryan reynolds the ryan reynolds one that one's supposed to be really embarrassing. with your beloved scott speedman that was also in that movie and so. i do believe rosario dawson you're correct um but also that was the one with goodbye to language the godard movie that was filmed in like mm-hmm. weird like magic eye like <laughs> sort of um <laughs> that had that very <clears throat> excuse me that had that very distinct visual uh, language. Foxcatcher, Bennett Miller's Foxcatcher, which ends up being a uh, an Oscar success in some sort of peculiar ways, in a way that I've only seen that movie once. I found it a little snoozier than I wanted it to be, but I really like certain aspects of it. I think Ruffalo is tremendous in it. I think Channing Tatum's actually really That's good in Channing it. Tatum. I think Corral's the I least... I think that movie's great, but it's so clear that they had a trouble uh, getting a reasonable running time for it, because yes. the scuttlebutt on that movie is it was almost going to be not almost going to be released but when it was pushed off from the year before it's because they were having trouble getting it under four hours uh yes that i agree with uh other movies at that can mike lee's mr turner a really really uh you know impeccably shot by dick poop but also just like a really tremendous movie and timothy spall should have been uh oscar nominations but not timothy timothy spall should have been nominated he was really tremendous we've talked about mommy we've talked about leviathan oh all right also Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, and maybe I'm thinking of a different movie of hers, but was Naomi Kawas's movie Still the Water 
really buzzed about as a contender to win the Palm that year. Because I feel like... So much has come out about her in recent Oh, do years. tell. I don't, I'm, I'm ignorant of all of this. There, she had some stuff come out either around the time of last year's can or around then that she might be a monster. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, like, uh, perhaps Lydia Tarr proportions. Oh, gosh. Well, there we um, go. But I feel like one of those years, people were really, really uh, thinking she was going to maybe win the Palm. And I don't know whether it was this year. Because she's been in the can competition None of her movies have ever made real huge waves. And I think right. Still the Water is one of the ones that maybe got, like, a Grand Prix or something. Mm, okay. Okay. Um, she almost never has a U.S. distribution. I no. saw, I think it was called Vision. I saw at one of the TIFFs that I've gone to, the movie that has Juliette Binoche and she fucks a man who turns into a tree. Sure. It's like, Great. it was, I was like, I understand why her movies don't have U.S. distribution. <laughs> um, uh, I would also say, also in a certain regard, yes. is Ryan Gosling's Lost River. Ooh, talk have about you it. seen this movie? No. I didn't. It is... Okay. I've heard enough... I have seen a growing contingent of people online saying that it is a great movie, and I am like, you guys are punking all In my mind... It's a barely functioning movie. In my mind, it's so tied up with... um, uh, What's the... What was the... Refn. Yes, but what was the Refn movie that was really bad? Only God forgives. Only God forgives. So it's so tied up in my mind with Only God forgives that I sort of like dismissed them both with this in the same bucket and just like I have other things to see. I'm not. I should. Congratulations see. to anyone who sees any type of meaning in this movie. I thought it was not fully embarrassing because the visuals are like uh, compelling. Like it's well shot, but it's yeah. it is a vacuum and. I I I don't know. I don't know what people want if they really like that movie. All right. What else? It is how Ryan Gosling knows Sersha, though, um, because uh, he cast her in that movie. I believe that's the movie. Okay. And like that, how it doesn't go around anymore because people know how to say her name now. But when the clip was going around of Ryan Gosling correcting people on how to pronounce her name, that's why. Interesting. I want to run down a few more. Um, it follows played International Critics Week that uh, year at Cannes, one of the best horror movies of the last twenty years. It's one of my favorites. I've seen it so many times. It's uh, tremendous Genuinely every time. Scary. Celine Chiama's Girlhood played Director's Fortnight that year. Good movie. Uh, our beloved Pride, Matthew Warkus's uh, Pride played Director's Fortnite that year, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, Whiplash. Uh, these were all uh, Director's Fortnite movies, so good for that festival. It's a strong one, I will say. There's a lot of Frederick Wiseman's National Gallery, which is the one movie of his sort of like recent run of like long um, poetry of municipal institutions movies that sort of gets <laughs> process documentary sort of gets slept on and i think it's 
really, really good. There is a... I haven't seen this one, so maybe I'll catch up to it when I have five hours. There's a gentleman who gives uh, student tours in that movie that I wanted to propose marriage to by the end because he's so sweet and charming. And um, what a good movie that was. Fred Wiseman movies, underrated comedies. (laughs) Honestly, yes. Uh, Just just really... (laughs) It was one of those things where I remember there was so much hullabaloo about how long At Berkeley was. And I remember being like, who is going to take five hours out of their day to go watch like people in committee meetings about whatever and then i watched i think i watched that first what was the one that came right after that was um in jackson heights and yes um jackson heights is maybe my favorite i think it is too but like all of them together at berkeley in jackson heights national gallery and ex libris the new york public library all of them Monrovia t- as well. Monrovia. I still amazing. have to see Monrovia, Indiana, but also that too. This sort of um collective work of the institutions that make up the world that we live in, and and its institutions, higher education and art, and you know, public library, and Jackson Heights is very, very much about like community building and like on the ground, like community work in these very sort of, mm-hmm. you know, and it all of it together is such a heartening portrait of the ways in which we all build a society. It sounds very sort of like cheesy to say it that way, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I, I love them all. I genuinely love them all. I could spend an entire day just sort of, that would be an interesting day. It's clear your entire schedule and just watch all the wise ones and just sort of like <laughs> luxuriate in, in American process. Have you seen the, the French strip club one? No, what's I, that one? I mean, calling it a strip club is maybe a little different. <laughs> it's more of like a cabaret, exotic yeah. type of thing. I, it's before this stretch of movies. Why do I think it's called Wild Horse? Okay, Horse? I forget what it is, but it's also a really good one. All right, nice. Should we move into like wrapping up uh, our force majeure notes before we move into? Yeah, what else do you have to say about force majeure? Let's see. I want to. Um, Hold on a second. I I because I called him Tormund Giantsbane because that was his character's name in uh, in Game of Thrones. But I do want to say <laughs> his name is Christopher Hyvjew Hyvjew I guess um the guy who played Mats and he really is tremendous. There's a scene where they're listening to Ava tell the story and his eyes are getting sort of like wider and wider as she's telling the story and he's just very funny to watch him hear it. Um, I like that this movie used the same uh metaphor about how if you're on a plane and you lose cabin pressure you're supposed to secure your mask before you secure your children's <laughs> masks was such a metaphor that is used quite often in Fleischman is in trouble and uh it was sort of at the top of my mind because of that um ba 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 the screaming nightclub the whitewashing oh um I don't know if you'll agree with me on this. Oh, well, I'll save that for last. The other thing was during the scene where Ava is trying to get them to let the let the, the van driver to let them out onto the road, when she's finally like, let me out, let me out. She's making such a scene. And finally he like puts a hand <laughs> to her and he's like, okay. And then he goes to what he thinks is going to be the button that opens the door and the windshield wipers go, which is such <laughs> a like classic joke format, but it works so tremendously well i laughed so hard mm-hmm. um but in terms of like doing an american version of this and obviously will ferrell i thought was pretty well unsuited to the role of tomas that guy johannes bakrunke looks so much like joe swanberg and i know you don't like joe swanberg but like <laughs> I hate joe but swanberg. that's maybe the type that you want or like an actor that i don't really right. love like anders Holm <coughs> from uh workaholics who i was almost like, want 
downhill to gender swap it. That would be really important. Because especially in, a, in an American context, I think what this movie does only seems more obvious, you know, and seems more gendered. That it's like, if you had Julia Louis-Dreyfus reaching for her phone and yeah. skedaddling, it's not only funnier, but you could maybe have a more interesting... Well, and then satire. you get into ideas of, like, a man expecting the mother to be more protective of the children than maybe he has to be and like that kind of thing and like that whole idea which isn't you know less obvious but also something especially with those two actors maybe it would be funnier yeah um downhill a movie that i still after all that criticism think is pretty okay it's better than a d plus you know cinema score kind of a thing but anyway um that's all i have what else do you have closing notes um uh ruben osland is uh not only very good at Vacation Brain, as <laughs> two of uh, his movies have featured, much like White Lotus is about Vacation Brain yeah. on top of the other things that it's doing. Uh, he is good at what is very comically, um, uh, I guess, sanitized or uh, sterile about uh, vacations. This movie uses a lot of... Uh, classical music but then when you hear like non-classical music in this resort mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. it reminded me so much of that Desiree song in Triangle of Sadness that makes me laugh <laughs> the entirety that it's playing because it's just like all chorus yeah. and elevator music but like yeah. on a balcony and it's very funny to me yeah I agree um, alright should we move into the IMDb that. game yeah, would you like to explain what the IMDb game is? I for sure our would. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice only performances, or non acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that is not enough, it just becomes a free for all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Are you giving or guessing first today, sir? I think I will give first. Okay. So I we were talking a lot about the Oscar year uh, for 2014, and so I delved into the acting nominees that year. One of the winners that year for Best Supporting Actor was J.K. Simmons, and we've never done J.K. Okay. Simmons before, and he's been in eight billion movies. So, <laughs> what were what would you imagine the top four would be for J.K. Simmons? Whiplash. Correct. His Oscar winner. Spider-Man. Correct. J. Jonah Jameson. His first appearance is J. Jonah Jameson. Juno. Juno. You are three for three on Juno, playing Juno's father, Mac McGuff. You said there's no TV. There is no TV. There is no voice performances. Okay, now we have pressure. Um, (laughs) Some newer stuff has been showing up. I am curious if being the Ricardos would be there, because that's just his second nomination, right? Correct. Correct. I'm going to pull the trigger and say being the Ricardos. Incorrect. He is not there for his performance as William Frawley and being the Ricardos. Okay, so maybe it's older than his Oscar nomination, though. I mean, I have Juno in there. What else would people have maybe read? Well, and Spider-Man. It has to be something after. What's the movie that he got real jacked for? In an action movie or maybe a superhero movie, and he got fucking ripped in a way that you're like, this old man should not be taking steroids. Um, what the hell was that, though? I genuinely, um, I'm trying to remember. 
I there's a couple of guesses that I have, but I don't want to say them because uh, right. <laughs> they may or may not be the correct answer. Um, no, no. He plays so many like detectives and such, uh, and he's in every Jason Reitman movie somewhere. Um, I'll just say thank you for smoking. It's not thank you for smoking. All right, so that's two strikes. Your okay. remaining year is 2016. Okay, so it's after his Oscar. Yes. Would have been shortly after his Oscar. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was back in Marvel after the Raimi Spider-Mans. I will say, because um, it's not 2016, he has shown back up in the Marvel ones as J. Jonah Jameson. He's in the newer Spider-Man ones. It's a, it's a, it's a quirk uh, of casting. Because the multiverse, the most annoying thing in popular Shut culture. Shut up and answer the, the questions. All right, calm down. Um, uh, okay, 2016. What are 2016 movies that he is possibly in? It's not going to be any of the can movies. That is the year that... Moonlight wins Best Picture. What was he in that year? Not La La Land, though I think he is in La La Land somewhere. Or a voice in La La Land. Is it La La Land? It's La La Land. <laughs> That's La La Land. He's just like a voice. He's in right? like two or scenes. No, he's cameo. there. He's yeah. but he like he barely he barely does anything. It's a glorified cameo. Sure. Yes, La La Land. That is what you get for being the smartass about Marvel, is you you say not La La Land, and I... I don't just hate Marvel for the multiverse. The multiverse is everywhere. The multiverse isn't, like, a it. sentient thing. It's a concept that, like, a couple movies... But it is done. stupid. <laughs> I don't think it is inherently stupid. I think you think it's the stupid because you don't like Marvel. The only time a multiverse Marvel, hasn't been stupid is everything everywhere all at once. I thought that that was a creative way to do a multiverse. I guarantee you there are other examples. Anyway, what is your IMDb game for me? I'm sick of talking uh, about Since uh, I have been too nice to you, and you have put, <laughs> okay. been pulling out some very difficult things for me, I decided to not be so nice this week because we're doing a uh, mo- uh, filmmaker whose movies are not very nice, so why not? Um, I went into Ruben Uslan's cast list, and for you, I chose the, to me, very difficult to place Dominic West from The Square. There okay. is one television. The Wire. The Wire. Okay. All right. Dominic West in films. Motion oh, pictures. God. Three motion pictures starring the actor Dominic West. There's one movie that I think he's in, but I can't be totally sure. But I think he is. Is he in 300? He is in 300. Is that one of them? Yes. Okay. All right. So two for two. Chicago? Chicago. Everyone in Chicago has it in their notes. That was my thinking. He's in so briefly, but like everybody in Chicago. Uh, Dominic West is the answer to Christine Baranski's eternal question. Now tell us, Roxy, who's Fred Casely? Who's Fred Casely? Who's Fred Casely, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Tell us, Roxy. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. One more Dominic West. You're not getting a perfect score. I can tell you that. (laughs) Well, then I guess it's not Pride, even though I do love him in Pride. Um, Are you guessing that? No, I'm not. You wouldn't say I'm not getting a perfect score if it was Pride. Um, Unless you're trying to fool me, in which case that's mean. Um, 
Dominic West. What's what's a what's a what's a what's a what's a what? Um, the Forgotten. Incorrect. Not the Forgotten. Damn. All right. Um, Every actor should have a known for, and then they should also have a GIF in, like, in their <laughs> next to their known for, like a GIF that they remembered for, and that should be Alfre Woodard's, where she just gets sucked into yep. the cloud. It's great. It's so good. Um, the best part of that, though, is it it doesn't it works as a GIF fine. It works better as a video clip, though, because you really have to hear her because she's like explaining the like she's unlocking the secrets of the movie and she's so serious and she's got to be like you don't understand. It's bigger than you think. It's whoop, and then she gets like taken out, <laughs> plucked like from a from a like an arcade uh, gift. You know the magic claw. It's like one of those. Um, all right, Dominic West. I feel like I hit in so many ways. I feel like he's in like anachronistic, like, or maybe I'm just thinking of 300 a billion times, but like a clash of the Titans thing or something like that. Um, uh, but I want to think of something that I like know for sure that he's in. I'm just going to throw pride out there and I'll, I'll burn the guest to get the year. Pride is incorrect. Your year is 2018. Hmm. 2018. It is a rebooted franchise. Oh. I'm guessing you did not see. <laughs> is it the bad Fantastic Four? It is not the bad Fantastic Four. It is not good. I know that much. And I didn't see it. I'm sure you didn't see it because really no one saw this. No one Was, wanted this. Is it a Transformers? Truly, no. Truly no one wanted this. Truly no one wanted this person in this role. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I'm guessing he is playing the father of... It's a titular character, like, but we know her as this thing. It's not like a superhero name, but it is... And it's not a, uh, the character's name. name right. It's like the invisible woman. But like, but like, if I said to you character name, you would say, oh, title. Right. Oh, uh, and it's a rebooted thing. It's not Gem and the Holograms, because that is someone's name. Um, it's action it's a- superhero. Yes, and it's it's a reboot of a franchise, but it's only the third time this character has been made on on film. A Catwoman? No, not a Catwoman. No. Um, Though we have only had, if you is it like count. comic book superhero or like no? But you're not far off. Um, like literature, like from no. What's something that people tend to look down their nose at when it becomes a movie? Horror. No. Oh, that when it becomes a movie? Yes. Like a game, like a board game. Uh, what kind of game? Video game. Yeah. Lara Croft. She's Lara Croft's the father, Alicia Vikander, Lara Croft in Tomb Raider. Okay. okay Which okay. Lara Croft is it? Who plays Lara Croft? Uh, Alicia Vikander, right? Yeah. Yes. Everybody yeah, wants yeah. Alicia Vikander in yep. action movies. That was her Oscar follow-up. All right. Well, you had me. You got me. I did get three for three right off the bat, so I'm happy you about did. that. You did. All right. Let's wrap it up. All right. I think that is our episode. If you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar Buzz, a had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz, and on Instagram at thisheadoscarbuzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? 
Instagram, not Instagram. Why do we keep saying that? I'm not on. It's because we've added Instagram <laughs> to the site uh, boilerplate. I am on Twitter and Letterboxed at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R E I D. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chrissy File. That's F-E-I-L. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So break through this whiteout of snow and uh, come through with five golden shining stars. That's all for this week. We hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Bye-bye. Everyone's a winner.